This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome to Literary Treks number 229, your official Star Trek books and comic show here on the Trek FM network. And I am just one of your hosts, Bruce Gibson, and with me, as he always is, with book in hand, Dan Gunther. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Not too bad. Really happy to be here, as usual, Bruce. And yeah, book in hand, raring to go. Well, you've had a busy week because you were at the Calgary Expo. Tell us about that. I have, yeah. So the Calgary Expo, it's the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo is the full name. That's just too long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because I went there as media for the first time this year, and they very explicitly say you have to call it the Calgary Expo or the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo. Heaven forbid you ever say Comic-Con, that is definitely out. Do not call it that. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it was great fun. There were a few Star Trek people there, and I actually did get a chance to interview very briefly for about a minute and a half. Garrett Wong, who played uh, Harry Kim, of course, on Voyager. So you can check that out on my my YouTube channel. Uh, I'll I'll have it up by the time this episode goes up. So (laughs) that was exciting. I was incredibly nervous, as I'm sure you'll be able to tell on the video. Oh, cool. I can't wait to check that out. That reminds me. So I, uh, I had lunch with David R. George III, who's a Star Trek author, for those who don't know. But uh, and he lives locally here. And I was telling him something about Garrett Wong. And I said, you know, the guy who played um, um, and I had a brain fart. Oh, and no. he's like, and he's like, Harry Kim. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, Harry Kim. And he just looks at me with this grin like, come on, you can do better than that. <laughs> and I'm oh. like, I feel so bad. How did I not get that? I mean, I love Voyager and it's not that I don't know. You know, you just have those brain farts, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. those ones that like, you know, two more of these and I really have to turn in my Trekkie card. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't do that now. I, I, I got to be on point. I got to be on top of things. So speaking of point I, I so I want to ask you a quick question this has something to do with literature in a sense this is about writing so I am over the age of 40 just because that pertains to the story so someone posted the other day on Facebook about you know for those who are over 40 you don't need to double space between sentences because when I was growing up apparently 
when typewriters are being used, it, you were told to double space. But now the way the letters work, they're more proportional to each other and not monospace. So the spacing nowadays when you type on computers allows you to not have to double space between sentences, but single space. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I always single space in Twitter because I'm saving character space. <laughs> but I, I just want to know from you, Dan, what, what do you know about, do you double space or single space between sentences? You know, what's funny is growing up, even though it was mostly word processors we used, there was never a typewriter in my school. I was after that. But we were always taught to double space as well. So I was just plugging along, happily double spacing my way through life. And then I saw on Facebook, probably about three or four years ago, uh, some author somewhere railing against, you know, the fact that people still double space and it's supposed to be single space now and it looks awful. And I kind of, oh, and quietly filed that in my mind and started single spacing since then. And uh, it's actually kind of funny if you look at my blog, my book review blog, it's all double spaced up until a certain day and then it's all single spaced. So I'd I'd be curious myself to look back and see what exactly that date was that I switched over. But yeah, no, I I was always taught to double space and that was even on computers. So, well, you know, I I don't have any, a recent novel in front of me right now, which is really odd. I just want to look at a novel and see if it looks single spaced or double spaced, but, um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's single space. Wow. Okay. Anyway, I'm I'm single space from here on out. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said, the same thing happened to me. I was just like, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> then I just changed, and yeah. Apparently, Facebook even when people do double space and then they hit post, it automatically single spaces it all. I could be wrong about that, but I heard that Facebook just fixes that. Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to check that out too. Interesting. Well, that's not what we're all here to talk about. That's part of what we want to talk <laughs> about, but we do have a feature coming up later in the show, a DS9 novel, an early one called Fallen Heroes, and it's by David Abhugh. I don't know if I said that correctly. I think it's, I think it's actually Daveth. I David. There's yeah, a fifth. Yeah. It's a, a fifth? it's a, it's a Welsh name, I believe. Okay, um. David, have you? I, I <laughs> yeah, don't know. It's, it's, it's odd. It's, uh... But anyway, that's coming up in the future later. So we're going to talk about some Deep Space Nine fallen, he- fallen heroes. And we have Brandon Shea Matala, who's going to join us uh, in that segment. And of course, he's a Trek FM host here on some other shows on the network. But before we do that, we do have a comic we want to review. And I'm very sentimental about this one because this is Star Trek Boldly Go number 18. And it's significant, not because it's number 18, but because number 18 is the last issue of the Boldly Go series. So pull out your tissues, wipe your eyes. The series is done. And we're going to cover that last issue. And this is actually uh, part six of the Idic line uh, arc that we've had in the last, of course, now six issues. <sighs> yeah. So sad. Agreed. It's, uh, I kind of want to sing some Sarah McLaughlin or something here, but I don't know if our, our rights will cover a lot of that song. I don't think our rights would cover you singing, period. <laughs> I think we don't have enough liability insurance taken out on our listeners' ears for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> 
true. Well, you know, I'm not going to get too sad because I've been down this road before. Number issue number 60 of Star Trek ongoing was the last issue. And I was all upset. And then like two or three months later, they're like, Oh, we're coming out with boldly go. And we're picking right back up with the Kelvin timeline stuff. It's like, Oh, they're just kind of starting over again. So I'm, I don't know anything at this point. I'm just saying we may see the Kelvin timeline again in comic form, but as of right now, this is the last issue for a while. Yeah. And as Sarah Gato said, when we talked to her, people love an issue number one. So, you know, a lot of times comic lines will do this and just kind of start a new series and say, oh, this is issue number one of of the new series. So again, like you say, we don't know. There's no word on if that's happening, but I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised at all. Well, I would be a little surprised only because in the previous issue, there was mentioned that they're getting ready to uh, get on, get back to the Enterprise, the Enterprise A, that it's done. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if Paramount will allow them to go that route because they may be starting on the Enterprise A in the next movie. We don't know yet because they don't know exactly what they're doing with the movie at this point. And maybe they do, but anyway, there's also a variant cover of this issue that shows Kirk, Spock, and Uhura looking at the Enterprise A in space dock as if it's getting ready to go on its voyage soon. So that almost makes it feel like it's the end. Yeah, I I thought we'd get some of that uh, in the story. I thought they'd, you know, at least get to the point where they're getting ready to get on the ship by the end. But we don't really get that in this story. So that was a little surprising to me. Yeah. And unless Paramount says, you know what, guys, go ahead and start a new series on the A because the next movie is not going to pick up on their first voyage on the A. And I would be thrilled to see that in comic form. Like, that, you know, yeah. it's called Star Trek. Kelvin Timeline Enterprise A. No, that's a little too long. That's almost as long <laughs> as the Calvary Expo title. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, you know, to be fair, Star Trek Beyond ended with the Enterprise finished and leaving space dock. So, you know, we know the crew is out there flying around past some closing credits. So I don't think it would be that big. It certainly wouldn't be as big of a a stretch than if during the DC run at the end of Star Trek three, they introduced an enterprise a in the comics and had them fly off on it. Like that would be, they weren't able to do that because of course that hadn't happened yet. And we wouldn't get that till Star Trek four, but they still found a way to do adventures kind of like the boldly go series, but the enterprise a is out there and we've seen it fly off. So I don't think it would be a huge stretch to say, Oh, we're on our shakedown cruise. That's what the new comic series is. Hopefully we'll see that. I'm, I'm hoping for that. But that would be pretty cool. <laughs> we'll see. But let's this issue again is the last in this series, but also the last of this Idic arc. And we start things off where we see Kirk with Gary Mitchell, and they both have that that godlike stuff going on with them and their eyes all sparkly and almost sounds like it's a you know, like a fashion show, sparkly. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love the way it starts because I feel like this was a line that was written for William Shatner's Kirk. And I think he would probably be sad that he never got to say it. Captain's log supplemental. I'm a God now. <laughs> like that's just so Kirk. Like that's perfect. <laughs> I think William Shatner used to say that in the mirror to himself. 
<laughs> I would believe it. <laughs> well, what's cool about how this starts off is they both have this godlike thing going on and they're playing the 3D chess game with each other. And the characters, the little, you know, what do you call them? The the pawns, the pieces, I guess. The, the pawns, pieces, that's yeah. it. Oh my gosh. The pawns are the characters from the different ships from the enterprises. And in the previous issues, what we saw is all these different universes of enterprise crew members. So we saw, you know, Kirk, we saw a female Kirk. We saw a Kirk that grew up as a Klingon. We, he's not a Klingon, but he was raised by Klingons or he grew up on Kronos. We saw uh, the crew as trees, as metal people, like all kinds of things. And so this is that last story to that. And so we see less of, all these different crew members, they're still in here, but we're not seeing as much as we saw in the other ones. The focus of this story is really on Kirk and Gary and them playing against each other. And the different crew members, we see them live in different situations on different planets relating to one another, but they're really being played by Kirk and Gary. Yeah, I liked that kind of conceit of the story. So like you say, Kirk and Gary are playing this three-dimensional chess and the moves that they make in the game are echoed by uh, what's happening to the characters in the rest of the story. So uh, it almost made me want to launch into a whole thing in my brain about free will versus, you know, fate or destiny and being controlled by an outside power. But uh, I, I don't want to get that deep into it because then I start kind of freaking out about stuff. But uh, yeah, it's a really interesting story. And the pieces get moved around in new and interesting ways. And to me, what is really interesting is the way it ends. And I have, I don't know, some mixed feelings about that. Hmm. So what you're not talking about the last page, are you? Or no, because the last page is what turned my mind around about okay. my mixed feelings. <laughs> But, you know, it just seems very abrupt, the ending, the, the ending to the actual action and how it goes down. Um, it's kind of one of those things where I'm not sure how they could have ended it otherwise, but it's very, I don't know, it seems to happen very quickly. That Yeah, I agree. It's, I, I like this issue better than the previous ones in this arc. Uh, I like the last, the previous issue, uh, better than the other four i think the first four it was just weird with all these different enterprise crew members and a female kirk and a tree looking kirk and all these different you know crew members that the enterprise crew is just for, like all these weird universes but then when we got to this point with with gary mitchell then it became really interesting to me mm -hmm. and the focus was more on these two characters and those other characters were kind of on the side uh, they're kind of the minor characters or the ones being played by these two. But yeah, when we get to the end, we see all the different enterprises from the different universes. And I talked about this on another episode in one of the other comics. I'm a little disappointed that we have all these enterprises from all these universes, but they all look like the Kelvin Enterprise. Like mm -hmm. I want to see, oh, there's the TOS Enterprise from like the TV series. And oh, there's an enterprise that looks like a different type of enterprise. We never Like I want to see different enterprises and heck, throw even the enterprise that we just saw at the end of discovery in there too that would yeah. have been really cool <laughs> but they're all kelvin timeline enterprises and i'm just like eh, well, a little more variety but totally but that, yeah. that's not a big deal <laughs> I, I was looking through all of the enterprises i'm like okay where's the tree enterprise and like surely that one would look different 
right? Right, but, right. If yeah, all these crew all members look, look different, yeah, why don't the ships look different? Yeah. I mean, there's a slight variance on some, but very slight. But mm-hmm. anyway, but yeah, the way it ends, and if nobody wants to hear, just kind of jump ahead like five minutes. We're not going to go too far into this. But then, you know, Kirk just basically convinces all the crew members when Gary's not paying attention just to fire at them. <laughs> yeah. And then it's kind of like flash and they're back on the bridge of the Endeavor, I'm assuming. Uh, and everything's back to normal and no one else remembers anything except Kirk. And uh, it seems that like Gary could have destroyed them all, but didn't kind of thing, which is the one thing that I found interesting about this ending was that it seems like, you know, Gary's like, I won. I can destroy you anytime I want. And Kirk's like, you're right. You can anytime, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that I, I think that Gary is just wants to play against Kirk and not necessarily destroy everyone. And mm-hmm. I think Kirk, you know, even though Gary might talk it up like he would, I think Kirk's like, you know, I don't th- I know that Gary's full of crap, you know, and I'm going to yeah. call him on it. And yeah, Gary, you know, you could do anything you want. Sure, you can. Sure, you can. Go ahead. And Gary's like. Ah, yeah, whatever. And then leaves, you know? <laughs> like, Kirk knows, yeah, Gary's not going to do anything. Yeah. But then the, the very end of this, I thought, was a really nice way to end both this story and the current Boldly Go series, which is this, you know, since Kirk has glimpsed all of these different realities, because as he said at the beginning, he was a god, uh, he got to glimpse the reality, which I'm assuming is if not the prime universe, something very close to the prime universe where his, his father lived and he had a relationship with his dad and learned from him and went exploring with him on his motorbike. And I, I thought that was really sweet. That was a really nice way to end. I, I, I was grinning by the end of this. Uh, same here. And I guess this is when, uh, when Paramount said two years ago, Chris Hemsworth is coming back. They meant this issue, right? <laughs> that must be it. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe this is the Kirk's father that will come into uh, from this timeline and come into the Kelvin timeline movie, the fourth movie, whenever that comes out or whatever. But no, mm. I agree with you. It was a nice way to, to end this arc and this story to see uh, that Kirk got a glimpse of himself as a young boy with his dad. Um, so the, yeah, that's a nice touch. However, I was a little disappointed knowing that this was the end of this line. And as you mentioned earlier, I wanted to kind of see them all returning together to get on the A or some kind of cap to this whole 18 issue series that we got, but we didn't Mm -hmm. get that. You know, it's just as a total little side note here. One of the guests at the Calgary Expo was Jennifer Morrison, who of course played Kirk's mother in Star Trek 2009 and Garrett Wong moderated that panel. He was the MC. And he moderates every panel besides at uh, <laughs> Las Vegas. But anyway, go on. <laughs> he does it. He's really good at it. He clearly loves it. But And he and he played um um oh what's his name on Voyager? Uh uh, uh Harry Kim. Right. Oh, yeah, that guy. That <laughs> But this was just a little note thing that I noted at the very start, he talked about Star Trek 2009 and how much he loved that scene, probably because he knew nobody in the audience would ask about Star Trek because, you know, it was Jennifer Morrison. She's on once upon a time. She's doing other stuff, but 
he brought up that scene and there was just one moment and he said, um, you know, that scene where George Kirk, your husband, he dies and she cut in. She said, I presume dead. And he was like, right, right. Presume dead. And then it moved on from there. And I was like, wait, wait, what, what? Like, does she know something? Is she in going to be in the news? Has she seen a script or something? Anyway, total speculation. But I was like, as the biggest Trekkie in that room, I'm sure my ears perked right up. <laughs> I think it would be a disservice to that movie if if he survived, if George Kirk survived that scene. I, because I that's kind the of impact agree. of that scene is him that, dying. That scene is the best scene in all of the Kelvin timeline, in my opinion. That is just such a moving scene and yeah. it's brilliant. And yeah, I, I don't disagree with you there anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they'll handle it or if they're going to do anything, but we'll see. Um, I, I'll, yeah, we'll see. I, I have <laughs> nothing else to say, but we'll see anyway. So we'll, uh, go right into the feature, but before we do that, I just want to mention up front. So in our good, Re- good reads group, uh, we've got some forms set up to talk about the series of, the TNG novels, A Time 2, those nine novels. So we uh, already reviewed A Time to Be Born, but then we've got the other eight to do. And so if you're not a member of a Goodreads group, then uh, go into Goodreads and look for literary treks and join the group. And if you're already a member, go ahead and if you're starting to read those books, post in the forum there. We have, uh, we're going to set up each book as its own category and you can put spoilers in. We can already start discussing the books even before an episode comes out. So feel free to do that. And so I just wanted to mention that up front. Awesome. So let's go in and do the feature. Where's Brandon? Brandon, Brandon, come over here. Let's do this. So Brandon, I'm glad you came in. I'm glad we're getting, going to talk about this novel now with you. So thank you for joining us. Uh, actually, I am, I've already been here. And I was away for three days, and now I've come back to prevent a disaster. Oh. You guys better run, because you're about to die. I was wondering why you were shirtless and disheveled and carrying a weird bucket. Uh, Oh, my hands are all burnt, and yeah, you'd think it was my puke bucket, but it's not. It's really my buddy. (laughs) But my shirt's off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't going to really comment on it, but uh, yeah. Wow. You know how to make an entrance. Yeah. I looked like a plucked chicken. <laughs> you know, sometimes I look in the mirror with and I have my shirt off and I'm like, ugh, that's no, I don't like what I'm seeing. But I actually feel better now after seeing you, Brandon. <laughs> yes, I know. There's a comedian. I can't remember who the comedian was. It might have been. Oh, I, I can't remember. But he talks about, you know just quickly glancing in the mirror in the morning on his way out, because if he stops for any length of time, he becomes like a, a football coach that just saw a bad play. Oh, come on. You're going out looking like that. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, we got to start by saying, you know, football is a funny game. That joke itself was kind of lame. You are my friends to talk about books. And sometimes when I eat dinner, I like to cook. I like it. I'm 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 more I'm more too. induced to uh, do business with you now. I think. Yes, it sounds better in my natural Canadian language. <laughs> you know this. You... See, this is so great, Brandon. Because the last time I was on a show, uh, Dan and I were on the edge with you, and you just finished eating spaghetti. Yes. And so now I'm drunk and have no shirt, and I have a slop bucket. <laughs> 
These are clues for the book we're talking about. We're not just rambling on and on. These are well, clues. a little column A, a little column B. Yes, these are clues. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are talking about Deep Space Nine, Fallen Heroes, and this book is an early novel that came out in 1994, in February of 1994. And this is back when Pocketbooks was numbering all the, the novels. The good old days. And so this, the good old days where you can put them on your shelves in the numbered order. and Well, you can still put them in if you have these older books. But the newer books, they don't put the numbers on anymore. So there are no numbers unless it's like a little mini-series, book one, two, and three type of thing. But they used to number every book. And so this was number five in the Deep Space Nine line. And uh, so this coming out in February 1994, this would have put us in the middle of season two. Mm -hmm. So more than likely, this book was written around the time of season one or after, probably a bit of both. And uh, so my question to you guys is, when was the first time you've read this book? Well, I don't know exactly when I read it, but it was pretty close to publication because I had it, I bought it when it first came out. It would have been shortly after. If I didn't read it right when it came out, it was within a couple months. Yeah, uh, I read this last week. <laughs> that was the first, first time? time. Um I, I did have mm-hmm. the, the paperback. I probably picked it up at a secondhand bookstore at some point, just kind of like, oh, this one I don't have, cool. Uh, but yeah, this was the first time I read it. Uh, this is it's interesting to me because last week I was talking to Dan uh, on the other side of the page and I said I was really looking forward to reading this novel because I think it's the first Deep Space Nine novel I ever read. So I went to my bookshelf and I saw numbers one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> I was like, wait, where is it? And I've looked every- and I, I keep them all together and everything. For some reason, I thought I had it. I, I guess I didn't. I guess I didn't read it. And if I did, maybe I lost it, which I have a hard time believing because I'm so protective Ooh. of my Star Trek novels. So this may have been the first time reading it. And so I had to read an ebook copy of it because I don't have hmm. the original. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I remember it made like pretty big waves, like when the book originally came out, because it was kind of like a different novel, and it was really shocking. And for a while afterwards, like it was known. You know, this isn't really spoilers because it's the plot in it. This is the book where everyone dies, you know, and it, it's it was an interesting concept and it was really exciting when the book came out. And I, I remember when the book came out, like I I loved it the first time that I read it. We'll talk about later on on my opinions and whether they held up or changed or whatnot. But the first time I read it, I loved it. It was the, the greatest Star Trek book I'd ever read, you know, and we, we discussed Echoes you know, a couple of months ago, like this and Echoes were the books that I held up as the high standard of Star Trek books at the time. Echoes was a a Voyager novel. And, you know, I was obsessed with this writer, like his name is Daveth Abhugh. And, you know, he had written this, if you look at his autobiography in here, like I found the Asimov magazine that had this, this short story in it and found it and read it. This, um, it's called the, let's see if we can read it. The Coon Rolled Down and Ruptured His Larynx, a squeezed novel by Mr. Skunk. It was like this short story that was in this Osimov's magazine. I found that magazine. I read the story. And, you know, Daveth Apew has had a couple of other books. He wrote a, a Next Generation novel. I think it was called Balance of Power or something like that. It's a Romulan book. And I think he wrote another trilogy of Deep Space Nine novels, which I haven't read. Uh, but they're ones with uh, the young Kai Wynn in them. I haven't read those ones, though. But, you know, he never really went anywhere, though, after that. 
But I mean, five books is still pretty good. Yeah. I, I, I think the only novel of his I'd read before, I think he does the fourth book in the Fury trilogy or quadrilogy. Yes. Uh, the final Fury. The yeah, Voyager you're right. Novel. I'd read that one as well. And I think that's the only one of his that I'd read before. And that was a long, long time mm. ago. I don't remember much about it at all. Yeah, neither do I. That was the first time they did one of those multi crossovers where they would have one book from each series. And I think he did the Voyager yeah. one, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, that's right. Well, I can tell you right now that you both are correct. Because I'm looking up right now. The Well, okay, I see a bunch of Deep Space Nine novels. Yeah, he did the... Um, Rebels trilogy or something like that. Mm, the Rebels trilogy, right. It was There's three books in that, of course, because that's why we say it's a trilogy. <laughs> and then he did a Voyager book, The Final Furry, <laughs> in... The Final, Final Fury is a very different novel Furry. Uh, that we won't get into here. The Final Fury. <laughs> I'm so tired. The Final Fury. That's kind of furry. It's part that was book number four in the Invasion yeah, right. books, where they had the crossovers and stuff. And there was a Next Generation balance of oh, power. I even remember the title. It's number thirty-three, isn't it? Wow. Oh it man, is. I remember that number. You are so good. <laughs> do you have a computer in front of, of you? Of course I do. <laughs> recording a podcast. So anyway, <laughs> this book, so the main characters in this book are Quark and Odo. Now all the, the main crew are in the book, but the main characters are Quark and Odo, and Quark receives a large box with a seal on it from that, that is of the Cardassian Empire, and he gets it from this traitor, this Lonak traitor. And so Odo is having Bashir and then he's having O'Brien each scan the box because, you know, there could be something potentially dangerous in there. Something could explode, something, you know, Quark, we got to keep you, you know, and Quark's like, come on, just let me have my box. And they scan it and they say, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, you're going to open the box in my office and Quark and Odo go into his office and they break open the force shield and they rummage through the items and they find this little device and Cork starts playing with this device and then something weird happens and it's almost like they kind of pass out for a second or something weird, you know, and everything. And, and all of a sudden they find out that the station is empty. Nobody's around. Where's everybody? So that's what kind of starts off our story. So what did you guys think of the setup of this? Well, story? I like things that start with a mystery and they have to figure this out. Um, to me, and, and I kind of, thought this more as we got further into the book, it really felt like a narrative computer game almost where you find all these clues and you visit these rooms and then you have to visit the rooms again and all that. And we'll get into the main plot of what they do later in the book. But yeah, this setup, I love the mystery. I'm really enjoying like what's going on. What's what happened here. And also the fact that it's Quark and Odo together i think that was my favorite part of this book was pairing those two characters together um and really kind of it really reminded me of a later deep space nine episode the ascent where you get these two characters having to Mm -hmm. work together on a problem and they're you know very much antagonists to each other and seeing them having to work together with from their two different perspectives and they're very different personalities, but maybe not as different as you might think, you know? Uh, and, that, and that's kind of the beauty of these two characters together, to my mind. Yeah, you had mentioned earlier, uh, Bruce, about when did we think this take takes place. Like, 
we had we had read the book The Siege a little while ago, which was the second D Space Nine novel, and there was a lot of references to episodes that had come out up to a certain point, I think up to battle lines or something like that. And this one here makes a lot of references to episodes all the way up to In the mm -hmm. Hands of the Prophets. There's several references. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but they actually, there are references to the previous books that D Space Nine had released. In yeah, there's quite a few. Like in <laughs> it, they, yeah, they talk about, is it, when they're coming through, they're talking about, is it the Borg? And they say, no, not, not this time. And I mean, like, that's from the siege that we read when the Borg ship came through the wormhole. And, um, they, they make reference to Quark had changed some lighting after that big tournament that he had, which was the previous book, which was book number four, the mm -hmm. big game, <laughs> you know? So like, it, there's, it's interesting that they had this continuity in the book. Um, but right off the bat, something that threw me off is this trader came through the wormhole and he's got this Cardassian box. And I'm like, well, that threw a really big problem in, in the book right at the beginning for me, because it's like, why would this Cardassian sealed box be in the Gamma Quadrant? Which And it leads to this chain of events and whatnot. Why would this happen? Why would he find this in the Gamma Quadrant? And that was a really big problem for me in this book. Did that bother you guys at all? Well, it was from a previous novel that you didn't read. <laughs> that never, it never got published, oh, okay. though. <laughs> I don't know. It I did occur to me, too, because I thought maybe we would get some revelation later about that, because I thought at the time, why would, yeah, why is a Cardassian box being brought from the Gamma Quadrant? The Cardassians were never in the Gamma Quadrant until recently mm -hmm. when the wormhole opened. But, I, I, yeah, I don't know. That was and the box has been sealed for 100 years, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, it's been in the Gamma right. Quadrant for at least 100 years. Unless the traitor is someone who's been back and forth between the Gamma and the Alpha Quadrant recently and got hold of it, went to the Gamma Quadrant to do something and then was coming back. Well, except from there. that, just you know, the thing's 100 years sealed and the thing that they find inside is what sets off the chain of events for this alien race that comes from the Gamma mm -hmm. Quadrant. Well, that's true. You know? and, yeah. and what, yeah. And, and like I kept expecting them to explain that away somehow. And by the end of the book, and you know, I don't want to get too much into spoilers, I guess, but, you know, we find out that the Cardassians have encountered this alien race before and they know they're from the Gamma Quadrant. And that part really bugged me because they just kind yeah. of offhandedly say, oh, it was in the pre-wormhole days. So it took hundreds of years to, you know, travel back. But there's, you know, you'd think there would be some mention of this if there were a race from the Gamma Quadrant that the Cardassians knew about. Like that does, none of that made sense to me at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a big wrench right at the beginning that, that I'm like, what? But, I mean, once I got past that, I'm like, I, I started to enjoy the story a bit more. But that right at the beginning, that threw me off, you know. And we'll probably talk about characters as well. But there's a couple of character elements in the book as well that really threw me off. You know, one of them is, like, some of the characters have, like, an overt racism and whatnot. Like, even Kira, she's like, you know, like, why can't people look normal like Bajorans? <laughs> and then in the next chapter, Quark's like, why can't people look normal like like Ferengi? And he's writing it to be humorous, but it's like, I, I, I know that it's early on, but I mean, now that we know these characters so well, it just seems out of character for them to say these things. There's something in here that Dax does, which we'll probably get to later on, that really, really threw me for a loop. I'm like, whoa. The one of those that, this is just an aside because we're talking about it right now, but when... uh Kira finds something in Cisco that she admires 
And she's like, oh, man, you know, his tall stature. And if he didn't have that disgustingly smooth nose, I, well, uh, I better not think that way or something. And I'm like, okay, A, that doesn't sound like Kira. And B, like the, I just, ah, uh, anyway, that, that, that bugged me. <laughs> I was like, that's not Kira. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but that's also the, you know, what happens when you get these early books and they don't quite have the characters but I mean, if he's mentioning that's the only thing is if he's mentioning season one finale, like this was written probably between the first and second seasons, the, the characters are pretty decently established yeah. by then. And this was this was my right. biggest problem right. with the book right here. I mean, at, yeah. at one point, there were a couple points during this novel that I actually just had to like, okay, put the bookmark in and set it down and walk away for a little while because, and one of them was when Kira again, Kira. <laughs> Because Rage Dan was coming out. <laughs> no, it's just it's just little things that take me out of the book. And then I can recognize, okay, I'm not enjoying this right now. I need to just kind of like, I'm picking all these little things apart. And one of them, like, Kira calls somebody a pinhead. And I'm like, okay, no, that just, it doesn't work. <laughs> Look, okay, so Dan and I talked about this on the other side of the page before we started recording. And, you know... I think Carrie was Kira was just having a bad day. I well, you she, know she she, she has her moments. <laughs> she was hungover, she was grumpy, she was just just, you know, and Pinhead was just like that was like the word of the day for her. And I totally don't believe I can't her explain that everybody Quark else. Slipped a drink. It was totally her own fault too, right? Well, right. That was that's what they yeah, say in the book. I I that whole part I just kind of almost have to leave alone because wow. <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, okay, so now we're 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 answering the question about the characterizations of our crew members that we know so well now, but yeah, after one season, I think you're right, Brandon. It's like by this point, you should have a pretty good idea of how they right, talk right. and what they would say and what they wouldn't say. And as you said, as we get deeper in the book, I think we'll keep revisiting this topic, but that is one of the problems with the book. It wasn't a big problem for me it was just a few little things like here and there like you know okay she said pinhead uh, it doesn't quite sound like her but there were other times it sounded like Kira and so on and so forth so it wasn't like a huge way off like this doesn't even sound like this character through the whole book it seems like somebody completely different I never felt like that about these characters it was just certain okay moments. so the one with Dax really felt off with me so it, it's it's in the book like this isn't giving a spoiler it's in the book when they're under attack and and uh cisco orders dax out of ops to go and do something and which puts her in danger and dax is thinks in her head i can't even remember i wish i don't even have the page i don't have it open but she thinks a nasty thought to cisco like like i don't see you volunteering for this you know like mad that he's put her in this situation and i'm like no like i don't even at that point i'm like i don't even know if this guy's watched the show because this is dax and this is dax and cisco mm -hmm. yeah if i remember correctly wasn't it that she was even hesitant to go like she wasn't even like he asked her to go do something and she wasn't going at first like you know okay and like you said why isn't he doing it? And then she decides like, okay, whatever. Yeah, I guess yeah. I'm that, that did bug me as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> we'll, we'll keep going through that. I, although I think, you know, Quark and Odo were pretty good. Again, there may have been little things, but what they did is they found out, and now we're getting 
gonna get start getting into the, some more some spoiler ish type stuff here soon, very soon. So Quark and Odo knows that the station has been attacked by uh, invaders, and there are no survivors on the station. And you know, we just mentioned earlier that this is the book that everyone dies, and this is where we come to find that out. Well, not everyone dies because Quark and Odo are still alive, and they begin to realize that. They have survived this attack because they have been shifted and thrown three days into the future, just like Brandon has been on the show. And see, it's all tying together. Everything that was said at the beginning of the show, now it's making sense. And But there's some really gruesome scenes yeah. as we go through this because they're discovering the dead bodies of the DS9 crew. And I mean, they're like, shot in the head at this point i would say if you don't want to hear anything more this is time to get out but <laughs> what are your thoughts about the tone of this book i mean it's very dark i mean a lot of people will say deep space nine is one of the darker of the star trek series but this is even darker than the darkest of deep space yeah i have nine. to say there were some gruesome scenes and some darkness in this book i i would say it's still not quite to the level that the siege by peter david was and I I don't know why it maybe it's just didn't get into as descriptive uh, of some of the situations as Peter David did, but yeah, there's a lot of violence, a lot of I, I guess there are a few you know the description of you know them coming across Dax and having two bullet holes in her head kind of thing and you know it's pretty dark but uh, it seemed to work for this book and I and I. I kind of liked that it raised the stakes that much because when we encounter, first of all, Odo and Quark's reactions to this, I thought felt very real. And then later on, we meet a couple other characters uh, and their reactions and, and the trauma that they're experiencing. I feel like made that story, you know, just that much more meaningful as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Peter David because I was thinking about him and his New Frontier series as well because his his New Frontier books are pretty graphic and there's not a lot of really overt violence in Star Trek and even in the books. And so Peter David's books have always thrown me for a little bit of a loop when it happens. And this time reading this one, it, it threw me for a little bit of a loop. Like the one that really affected me was when they described Keiko like the way that he described Keiko, like the same thing. I think she was shot in the head as well. And like just, you know, the way she was looking. And I think with Dax, they were like her eyes had dried out and like shrunken and whatnot because they'd been left open and and a few other things. Like there's a few other crazy descriptions that he did. And I don't know if we're jumping the topic here, but just reading the book again, it's like it, it was a good book. But it's like why are we reading this book where it's like we know there can't be any permanent re repercussions from anything that we're reading? And so the first time when I read it, like 20 years ago, I'm like, this is great. This is awesome. It's something different. Everybody's dying. It's awesome. You know, and now I'm like, well, I don't remember the ending, but I know that it's going to be solved with a reset button somehow as I'm reading the book, you know, not just because it's the fifth novel in the series and we see the characters going on, but because of how the novels are, you know? So I don't know. I'm, I might be jumping the gun on the discussion a bit here, but that's one of the interesting. No, that's, that's fine because I, I, I think you're right. And it maybe it probably doesn't hold up as well as it did back then, 
because we know these characters better than we did before. And so I think it stands out even more that the things the characters do and say don't sit quite right. And at the same time, knowing that we've, we find out early on that Odo and Quark have been thrown forward three days in advance. So, you know, there's a time element. And like you said, there's got to be a reset button. So I knew early on, okay, they're going to somehow go back in time and fix everything. It's just a matter of when and how they're going to do it. So when you basically know where the story is going to have to end up and the characters aren't always feeling quite right, it just doesn't prove out to be a great novel, but just an Mm. okay read. An okay Star Trek novel. I mean, there's elements I really like about it because it is different and dark, but it just doesn't, there's parts of it that just don't work I mean, I I never thought of that perspective that, you know, this coming out early in Deep Space Nine's run, like during the second season, it would feel that much more meaningful than it does now. So, I, you know, I never thought of that perspective. Plus, add in the fact that we're now reading this after we've watched all of Star Trek Voyager. There's just a ton of reset button fatigue, I think. <laughs> Oops, sorry. I just badmouthed uh, so Voyager So this is Voyager's again. fault we don't like this book. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Voyager ruined fallen <laughs> heroes. <laughs> So what else? We also get not just the storyline about Quark and Odo, but we also get flashbacks of what happened on that day uh, with the attack of the station. And I like that part of the book, too, in the fact that we're as they're approaching a different section of the station, meaning Quark and Odo, and they're seeing a, you know, a dead body or, or something that happened. Then all of a sudden we get a scene of what happened during that time. And then we go back to Quark and Odo as they're figuring those things out. I thought that format worked really well in this book. Yeah, I did too. Um, I, I thought that the past story part was the better, stronger part of it up until actually when Jake, like like it's a spoiler when Jake comes into the, to the future timeline, but I did prefer the what was going on because the, the author's really good and he is really descriptive. And there is some really great scenes that occur occur during the attack, like when when the uh, the aliens. And I gotta say, did you guys not picture the aliens from uh, um, the Tosk episode, Captive Pursuit? Hmm. Uh, like the way that their mm. helmets were described and stuff, I totally pictured the hunters from Captive Pursuit. When I was this was an this. image that I tried to get out of my head while I was reading, but like an early description of them with the black bubble helmets, I kept thinking of the space balls. <laughs> That's it. That's what I thought Brandon was going to say. I thought the I same thing. I kept trying thing, to get it out of my head because, it's, because it is not menacing at all. But like every time they mentioned the black bubble helmets, I'm like, oh, crap. Dog helmet. <laughs> that's where they, that's where the baseballs come from is the gamma quadrant. So <laughs> they've come here to get our oxygen. Um. Anyway, so the the scene when these aliens confront Bashir was I think one of the best scenes just the way that it was described and mm-hmm. you know yes. the point of view of Bashir and how he was trying to interact with them it was really strong for Bashir's character and I really liked that scene a lot um, and the other scene that I thought was really good was Cisco in the elevator shaft you know so like there's some really great stuff that was happening in the book and and I, like I think the middle third of the book was kind of weak because it's like where is this story going to go 
but it gets strong at the end and it's kind of a strong beginning. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt like very interesting at the beginning with a strong hook to get you into the story. And yeah, like you said, the ending, you know, once I got there, I it was page turning. I was getting through it pretty good. But that middle lull is a bit of a problem for me. Like it does just kind yeah. of, you know, and, and I understand there's not really anything you can take out of this book to to make the story, you know, flow. But I just, yeah, it did seem to bog down and just kind of grind to a halt for me. Um, and I don't, I don't quite know why that is, but it did make it harder to get through this book than it usually does for a Star Trek novel for me. Well, I felt like it was just repetitive. They just kept going through the station and discovering yet another crew member that is dead. And then they, I mean, even Cork and Odo to me felt like they were just like, here we go again. There's another one. Okay. And, and I was talking to Dan earlier today about the reaction from Odo when they discover Kira. And this goes back to what we're talking about early in the series and, and the characters, but you know, Odo's got deep feelings for Kira, but when they discover Kira, it's just kind of like, Oh, okay. We got another one. Let's Mm. keep going. (laughs) You know, I expect like a big scene of Odo trying to deal with the death of Kira and they're just, that wasn't there, but I'm going to excuse that because it was early in in the series. Yeah, We really didn't get the Odo Kira start until middle of season three. mm. Right. But when you read it now, you just, that's what you're thinking, you know, but, but yeah, it just felt very repetitive. Just like me talking right now, I'm I'm saying the same thing over and over again. (laughs) Well, the format of the book that he wrote is Odo and Quark would walk around a bit. They'd find somebody dead and then they'd tell the story of how that person died. And then they walk around a bit more, find another person dead and then tell the person, tell the story of how that person died. And they gen they kind of progressed through the ranks. Like, well, it's not like from the lower characters to the main characters. It kind of was. Like, they started with O'Brien. If I remember my order correctly, it was O'Brien and then Kira and then Bashir and then Dax and then Cisco. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, they kind of progressed up the chain of command for how the people died in that order. And I don't know, like, I, I kind of want to jump to it. Like, when, when they got to Jake, when Jake came into the story and he started to tell his experience of how he survived the event... I felt that the the book took like a new level and it became really, really fascinating to me mm-hmm. in this last little bit because it, Jake is a young character and for him to describe what he was seeing, you know, like things like Nog's sacrifice and, you know, basically knowing, like figuring out what, what his dad did to save him and whatnot. I thought it was really, really interesting. And the fact that he found Molly and kept her safe and... You know, reading this made me think of Newt in Aliens, mm, yeah. you know, kind of like a similar plot point there where this young character survived this tragedy, right? Yeah, I really appreciated that part of the story. And, and like you, I feel like it, the story really took off then. And I, I feel like either the author has some background in child psychology or knows a child psychologist or just did some good research for this, but the whole thing with Jake and Molly and Molly kind of regressing a bit and Jake just kind of automatically becoming a parent figure for her and, and helping her through this to me, that was a really fascinating part of this story. And you know, what 
he, how humans react to trauma and tragedy and the things that we're capable of even during, you know, those horrific times, I thought was really fascinating. I really dug that part of the book. I also like them talking about how Jake, this is really hard on Jake because he's seeing all this death and the attack and he's, he doesn't know what happened to his father yet. You know, he's still dealing with the things that he experienced with the Borg attack and the death of his mother. And this is like a double whammy. It's like repeating that all over again for him. And he's almost in this trance like state of just like not, knowing how to respond and still processing and still trying to deal with things yet stepping in and almost into this father role with, with Molly and, and protecting her just like his father did with him when the Borg attacked them, their ship with, with uh, his mother's death as a result of that. So I really like that, that whole aspect of Jake in this book. And I, I kept having to remind myself how young Jake is mm -hmm. at this point too. And uh, that, that goes a long way too. And Molly's very tiny. I mean, she's not even five, I think they said, or just all about to be five. So these are young characters that had to deal with this tragic event. Like I picture this is taking place right between season one and season two, because they make the references to in the, in the hands of the prophets. I think it is whatever the last episode of season one is. And I mean, like they refer, they make a reference to Rumpelstiltskin in this book as well. And I mean, like if Molly's really small in that episode, like she's really young and, you know, like when, when O'Brien tries to put her back to bed, you know, she's like, you know, quietly nodding. And I, I, I saw that Molly when I was reading this, you know, because she did actions like that a couple of times too, where she was just like nodding with wide eyes and stuff. And it's like, I pictured exactly that scene where O'Brien's trying to put her to bed in If Wishes Were Horses. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Like the guy did a really good job of describing how Molly regressed. And I mean, you know, it's, she ended up wetting herself and Jake had to help her out and get diapers for her and stuff like this. And it's, it's, we're talking about D space dying and diapers. <laughs> like this is bizarre, you know, but it's, it was the part of the story that I felt was the most interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if we've ever seen diapers in Star Trek before. I don't think hmm. so either. The last time I watched diapers on TV was Mr. Bean when he changed the baby and it like flew off the merry-go-round and like landed in people's faces and stuff. <laughs> Mr. Bean is the best. I agree completely. Um, so yeah, putting on my nerd hat, which inexplicably wasn't already on because I'm on a podcast talking about a Star Trek novel. But anyway, um, if you go by nerd. the star date that they've given in the episode a couple of times, uh, Jake and, and Ben Sisko scratch them into the wall at various points. This would be just shy of about a quarter of the way through season two because it was four, seven, two, three something. So... That would be quarter of the way through next gen season seven slash DS nine season two, um, which, you know, yeah, I, I kept having to kind of refresh my image of Jake and Molly and remember how they were back then. And there was actually one line, this is just kind of a total aside, but I was like, that's kind of a cool little unintentional tie in when Jake and Nog walk past the runabout, um, pad and Jake <laughs> says, or Nog, Nog or Jake, I can't remember which one, says, do you know how to pilot a runabout? And they're like, oh, no, I don't. And then, like, if you flash forward to the season two finale of Deep Space Nine, if you could do one science project, what would it be? And Jake lights up, learn how to pilot a runabout? <laughs> like, huh, that's 
kind and then of... they end up having to fly into that episode as well and like yeah exactly apart. i thought the exact same thing too <laughs> i'm like oh the jemadari yeah i remember that yeah it's just kind of a neat so. little obviously not intentional that episode would not have even you know been thought of yet. aired yeah. yet yeah, yeah. but uh, just kind of neat like oh that's cool <laughs> Well, these alien invaders from the Gamma Quadrant, and we talked about their black bubble helmets, and they're wearing gray and black armor, and they have these strange weapon guns that they use to shoot. They're very invincible. I mean, they're, they're able to penetrate the shields of the station, and if you try to shoot them, nothing really happens. There's all this stuff, but they're going around, and all they're asking is, where is the other like us? And this is the thing that I kept wondering is they kept asking them, like, what does this mean? Who are they looking for? Because if there was somebody walking around the station and a black bubble helmet all this time, somebody would have noticed. Everybody's like, I don't know who you're looking for. Who's the other? Somebody like you. And they're like, just tell us where the, where the other one like us is. And I kept thinking, who could they possibly be talking about? So I was wondering what you guys were thinking at this point. Yeah, I was, I mean, you know, fairly early on, I was thinking it had to do have something to do with the device that Quark, you know, used. And uh, it, it's funny that these aliens, they have such little regard for people who aren't like them that they call they call humans and other creatures animals. They're not they're not mm-hmm. on the same level. But at the same time, that that really curtailed what they were trying to do because they didn't think to, you know, investigate more and ask more. Um, pointed questions to try and get to the bottom of it. They just assumed that because they got the signal from a device, one of their people was there and these animals are hindering them from finding him. And, and that, you know, that's kind of where their thought process ends processes end until our characters kind of piece it together themselves and are able to question it a bit more and, and get a little bit more information. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that their disregard of us limited their ability to figure out what was going on as well. See, I had a little trouble with this plot as well because, you know, I read this 20 years ago. I don't remember anything about the book. All I remembered was that this is the one where everybody died. That's all I remembered. And I'm like, to me, I'm like, it's obvious. Like, yeah, the characters they're talking to don't have access to the information that I have as the reader, but I mean, like, I, I was this supposed to be a mystery? Because I wasn't confused at all. I wasn't like, what could they be talking about? I mean, like, clearly it has something to do with this device that Quark activated. And I mean, so that was one of the, that's another one of the issues that I had with the book is that I'm like, well, when are they going to find the box? Yeah, it takes the characters way too long to get there. It it does bug me when I'm ahead of the characters when you're reading a story, trying to piece things together. This is different because we've been with Quark the whole time and they all haven't been. Like Cisco wasn't there when O'Brien scanned the box and all they did was scan the box. They don't know what's in it and they don't know that Quark activated. They don't know where Odo is. They don't know where Quark is. They don't Mm -hmm. know. But with us as the readers, I'm like, well, it's not a mystery to me. So I'm like, well, we know what it is. It's the box somehow, whatever it is. There's something in the box. What's in the box? Yeah. Right? Like, but I even Odo and Quark seem to take way too long to get there, too. I don't know. It just, it, it, it bugged me. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. The reason I kept thinking, like, well, who could this be? Who are they looking for? Is because, to me, it felt so obvious that it's the device that I thought, 
it's too obvious, so it's got to be mm-hmm. something else, you know? Like, I thought, oh, it's the device. Well, but no, well, that's a little obvious. There's got to be something, a twist in this. There's got to be a character, there's somebody on the station, something where there's a confusion or misidentification or something, and I kept expecting there to be that twist, and there wasn't. It was what you think at the beginning. So again, going back to what we said, we know the character is going to live and we know that they're three days, Odo and Cork are three days in the future and probably have to go back. Like, I feel like there were a lot of obvious things, although it was interesting to read. There really wasn't anything surprising mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. You were expecting it to be Garrick that they were looking for. <laughs> oh, that would have been great. Garrick with a big, Black bubble helmet on. <laughs> Doc Garrick. He was just doing some cosplay and, and it got out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> or Garrick sees these aliens and he's like, gray and black armored suits. Oh, I can do so much better than that. <laughs> He'll add to a my cape. Shop. It'll be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and then O'Brien figured out a way to get to these aliens and kill them is take... Uh, the phasers and make them into grenades mm-hmm. but you can't replicate them because the replicators can't create you know the energy for a phaser so they had to f- gather up every phaser they could and create these grenades out of them and then dax is making the grenades and everybody starts making the grenades at some point so i i mean i thought that was okay i mean there was nothing exciting about it but it was a way for them to it was their solution to get to the aliens and kill them Overall, that's not the thing that took the aliens down. It was Cisco. Cisco wiped mm-hmm. them all out. Mm-hmm. He uh, had his huge electromagnetic pulse from the fusion reactor that he set off after he climbed through the the turbo <laughs> shaft. Electromagnetic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. You know, the the phaser grenades were an interesting kind of solution. Um, I kept expecting. I, I, I do like the idea of an alien, you know, with this armor that's just so good and um, the idea of it being totally reflective and, you know, causing all this damage to the surroundings when they're trying to shoot them. I thought that was a neat, uh, neat problem to try and overcome. It bugged me when they kept doing the same thing over and over again, though. I mean, what else do you do, I guess? But, you know, when they're trying to retreat and they're like, give them everything we've got, open fire, and they, you know, cause more damage to the promenade i guess (laughs) because you know they know it's not going to work they had it set on maximum and it you know blew out a wall because it bounced off their armor so you know i was kind of annoyed with the station security for the first quarter of the book going like what are you what are you doing guys come on but uh yeah it was an interesting solution so cisco was also when he was in the fusion reactor he decided to get on the intercom system and send a clue to Jake that he needs to hide somewhere safe from the electromagnetic pulse. And I can't remember what he said. Wasn't it a quote Yeah, he basically kind of talked about the Bajoran sun god. (laughs) And from that, Jake was able to figure out that he's doing something with the fusion reactor. And then he figures out what Cisco's <laughs> doing with the fusion reactor and that he needs to get somewhere shielded from the electromagnetic pulse. 
And that Molly knows and where Molly, to go. And Molly knows where to yes, go. Yes, so Molly. That, oh, my God. <laughs> because she's heard her dad talk about where to hide during electromagnetic The weepy cells. cells. Something like that. Something like that. The weepy cells, which they really, oh, he, she means the yeah. weapons sale. So. And then he goes there and they couldn't get in, but they, they were, were in the yeah, shadow. They were in the shadow of the, of the other one. The lower one. Well, the, the okay, you missed the best line when they're like, Jake's frustrated, he's freaking out because he can't open the door, and then Molly pushes the button <laughs> and opens the door, and Jake's like, oh, yes, because O'Brien takes Molly to work with him, and it's like, what? <laughs> like, like, O'Brien's taking Molly to work deep in this Cardassian labor camp? Like, that's what this, his station was, a Cardassian labor camp. Why is he taking his daughter to work with him? Yeah. <laughs> He's protecting her from leprechauns. <laughs> yes. There's there's a lot in this. Like like I said, the, this back half of the novel I'm really enjoying, but there is a lot of that where I'm going, okay, this is a little bit ridiculous. Like I I It's a gold key almost, comic. Like I don't I don't know how Jake got gold all of that from comic. what Cisco said. Like I that doesn't it was there were a lot of leaps there, I think. That was a logic leap that was a little hard yeah. to follow. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a tough one to follow. But once you get past that, it's great. <laughs> that's that's the tagline Who for this book. Once this you book get past again? that, it's great. <laughs> it's great. This was my choice. This book was my choice. Yeah, no, it's not bad. I I, I actually enjoyed it. But now we also we have Odo. They have to get this like key thing to get the device to bring them back three days to the past so they can warn the crew about these invaders and so they can address it before any of this disaster happens again and so there's going to be some type of key or something on these uniforms but so many of them are these aliens that are dead you know their uniforms are destroyed because of you know the grenades or something else but then they finally he gives it into the fusion reactor and Odo starts to melt as he's gathering a key from when the uniform's in. By the time he's getting back to Quark, he's just a puddle of goo. Which I thought, I had no idea you can suck up Odo with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> that was great. As soon as like they open the locker and he sees like a, an industrial vacuum cleaner or whatever, I was like, oh God, oh yes, please, please, yes. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, I'm like, ah, oh, okay. I want to see Quark vacuuming up okay. Odo. I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and then put him into you know, a bucket. Gotta be a shop vac, a wet dry Then looking vac. up on the internet, how do you get Odo out of carpet, you know? <laughs> Sprite. I'm surprised Odo wasn't killed, though, because Odo was hot. Like, he was boiling hot yeah. mess of goo. That he's even, like, you know, going, like, destroying the bucket he was like burning through it yeah he was odo was so hot that he was melting through a bucket yeah i think they said it was and a steel so bucket. I, I yeah this guy clearly has watched terminator 2 multiple <laughs> times right because i was totally picturing the t-1000 in the uh in that metal plant at the end right mm -hmm. when he's like totally melting but i'm like i don't think odo's gonna survive that but again it's also early enough that we didn't really know a lot about odo at this point so I can give it the pass on that one, but but still, that's pretty far fetched, and I don't. I'm I was surprised by that. I'm like, huh? Odo is a hot enough liquid 
that he's burning through a metal bucket. Do they think he's going to survive this? <laughs> I That didn't bother me so much as it. I was impressed that he was able to survive that. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Because we haven't really seen, you know, what conditions would kill Odo as far as temperature goes. And I mean, we see loss, the other changeling flying through space and stuff. So, you know, extreme conditions. I, I kind of would have liked to have seen more of what Odo could withstand uh, in the series and stuff. And just generally about Odo in this book, it does things with Odo that I really liked. You know, things that they can't, they couldn't do with him on the show for budgetary reasons and that sort of thing. Uh, like that scene when he like takes his chin and like pulls it down and stretches it Yeah, back. that was weird. Because <laughs> he's like falling yeah. apart. He's been awake for so long that he could barely hold himself together, mm -hmm. right? And so like he's sitting there talking with Quark and then he like pulls his chin down and then pushes it back up. And I'm like, huh. Have you guys seen those pictures that Rene Aubergenois has shared like on Twitter and stuff of him pulling the Odo mask off at the end of the day? And it's like stretched out and it's the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> it's kind of what I was. Yeah, that's what I pictured. It's kind of what I was picturing. Makes me think of insurrection. What's that, sorry? Yeah, the, yeah. the insurrection, yeah, the stretched like faces of the Baku <laughs> guys or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, I I was thinking of that too uh, before you said it. it was about all the different shape shifting things that Odo was doing that we don't see in the in the series as much. So, it, you know, that's definitely something you can do in a novel that is not as easy in a series. But yeah, then the chin thing—it's like he went Jay Leno <laughs> on us or something. You know, it's just <laughs> that was kind of weird. So, but they did get back. They got back and they warned in court. Well, I mean, Odo's a, in a bucket. He can't do anything. He's just goo. And what Kira's like threatening Quark as always. Okay, and, and it takes Odo <laughs> four days to cool down. Yeah. Four days to cool down. It took Kira five <laughs> days to cool down. Just so you know. <laughs> but yeah, so Quark had to convince. Cisco and the crew to let him talk to the aliens who just came through the wormhole to tell them that there is no other that he messed with this device and everything and they were just like oh okay and they went back yeah. home yeah all right back through the wormhole that yeah nobody knew about a hundred years ago and never came back again right we need a sequel to Do this we, no, we though ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that ending was, uh, first of all, ag again with Kira, I, I don't know why I have so many problems with Kira in this book, but she is just so over the top angry at Quark. And again, yeah, maybe I guess she's hung over <laughs> or whatever, but like she threatens him with a phaser at the end here. And like, uh, it's just a bit much, I thought, but, uh. And even Cisco seemed kind of really unwilling to listen to Quark, but I guess he does look yeah. like a crazed madman, shirtless and probably burned from his ordeal in the central core and stuff. So I, you know, I, I guess, but they seemed uncharacteristically unwilling to listen to him at all. Right. I, I agree. Yeah. It was a little bit of a odd ending, but yeah, it's, they, Kira was pretty rough in it and, it's like one of those things where you get those people that they like, oh, th this is how this character is. And it's like, no, they're not really that way at all. You know, like you think they're that way 
because of things that they say and whatnot. But if you actually watch the character, they're not that way at mm-hmm. all. And even at this point, we Kira wasn't this this way towards Quark. She'd say a few things here and there, but nothing quite like this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, that being said, uh, Brandon, what are your final thoughts on Fallen Heroes? It's not as good as I remember it, but it's still pretty good. And that final third of the book is really interesting and really captivating. There's some really great stuff in this book. It's not a great novel, and it's nowhere near as good as I thought it was. And I chalk that up to a lot of, you know, I've read a lot better Star Trek books than this one. Um, I, like, I I recommend reading it because it's not a terrible book. You know, it's not terrible by any means. It's a fun read. It's it's interesting. And the guy's a pretty decent writer. And so I think for my final rating, I'd probably have to give it... uh, you know, three dirty diapers. <laughs> it's definitely a pungent <laughs> rating. <laughs> I'm still thinking of Mr. Bean now. <laughs> Dan, yeah, what did I, you um, think? I wasn't hugely impressed with this novel. There were a lot of little things that bugged me. And usually when they're little things, they don't impact the enjoyment a lot. But they, they really started to pile up in this book. Uh, the characterizations was a big one for me. Uh, and and some of the logic leaps that the story takes, you know, were a little annoying. I did, as much as the middle of the story t- tended to bog down a bit, I did like the way the story was told where they would find something and then they'd show the past and like how that happened and that sort of thing. I, I liked that as a storytelling device. Um, the ending, I really like the very ending where, you know, Odo finally recovers after four days and refuses to tell anybody what Quark did, which is, you know, really cruel, but at the same time, very Odo and very Quark, where Quark saved the station. He saved everyone's lives, basically. But Odo's like, you know, you can tell people if you want, but I'm not going to corroborate that story, (laughs) which, you know, it's pretty mean, but it still made me laugh. So, yeah, by the end of this, I think I'm really wavering between two and a half to three out of five. I guess it kind of rounds up, rounds up to three. But it's it's a 50% novel for me. It got about halfway there for me, which, you know, and, and that and that's owed to the, the interesting way the story is told and some of the neat ideas that are brought in, but a lot of the other stuff really weighs it down for me. So I'd, I'd have to say probably two and a half uh, torpedoes lobbed away from the station with a tractor beam. I don't know how you lob half a <laughs> torpedo away, but somehow they man- they managed it. Well, Cisco told them, showed them how because he plays <laughs> baseball. It's like, you know, hitting a ball it's with It's exactly a bat. like that. Not exactly. It's totally... The skill sets are, I would say, almost exactly the same. <laughs> I could see where this book would have played better when it came out. I think thinking back to some of those early novels, Deep Space Nine and Next Generation, that early 90s, I think I would have really been into this book uh, for various reasons because of, the, you know, wow, everybody's dead and it's dark and there's some time travel elements to it and the Odo and Court characters are really great companions and they bicker and it's, and that's fun element to it. 
I think I really would have liked it, but because we've gotten to know the characters better and they seem off in some of the things that they say, that kind of throws me out. And I think I didn't know where the story was going, so I was surprised there was no twist or anything that took me off guard. But, um, you know, it was... I enjoyed reading it. I do think, you know, if you like Deep Space Nine and you like reading Star Trek novels, yeah, I would recommend this too. But don't expect, you know, to be blown away by it and it's not going to be the best star trek novel you ever read but uh it was enjoyable and and it was Mm -hmm. kind of fun and it's also fun to talk about too so i would give this uh three out of five buttons that molly is pushing (laughs) nice (laughs) and one of them is she's pushing dan's button (laughs) (laughs) and she's pushing kira's button and it's really making her mad (laughs) putting her in a bad mood (laughs) Anyway, so Brandon, where can people find you online and elsewhere on the network? Well, when I'm not changing diapers, you can find me here on the network with Warp 5, which is our dedicated enterprise podcast. And you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast, where we go through all of Hitch's films one at a time with my good friends Chris and Tom. You know, as much as I love the later novels and the shared continuity and the depth of storytelling and all of that, it's sometimes really interesting to uh, to dive back into a book that took place during one of the series, you know? I, you know, regardless of our feelings on the book one way or the other, it's still kind of fun to return to that world as it was during the TV series. I like to think what was in the author's head at that time? What is the author thinking? It's like, oh, okay, this series just started. I'm used to, you know, TOS. I'm used to TNG. It's like, how do I write this and how do I approach it? And yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see how all that works out. And it brings back fond memories because I remember reading books at that time, you know, and and it always is amazing to me how many of these books are, are shorter than what they're there now like usually when we get a book now they're a little under 400 pages but back then they were you know somewhere between 200 to 250 maybe pushing up to 300 but they were a little shorter Mm -hmm. so it's kind of fun to look back and, and think how they used to be shorter novels and even prior to that back in the 80s and 70s they were even shorter yeah totally uh not to mention you know if you're doing something busy like going to a uh Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo over the weekend and you don't have a lot of time to read. I really appreciated having, you know, just a slightly shorter book this time around. (laughs) Well, it's been fun talking about short books, but it isn't the only thing we've been discussing here on the network. And here's a short and quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Warp 5. I guess I'm going to be the one dissenter because... I saw major differences, maybe not in the way it was shot, but in the storylines. And I just thought, yeah, it's Klingon court. And that's pretty much where the similarities ended for me. The 602 Club. And I really love, before they go to the tension, their principal, Bentley, saying, you know, you get one life and you get to decide how you're going to spend it. And on top of that, Bravestone says um, to... Finbar, he says, you know, it's a lot easier to be brave when you've got lives to spare. It's a lot harder when you only have one life. And Finbar's like, you've only ever had one life. The Orb. I felt like they found a reason for why Cisco would say, okay, I'll stay. 
Otherwise, you know, he immediately at the beginning was like, uh, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to get involved. Send me back to my universe. This is not my place. Earl Grey. Wesley and Petru pass by Worf's quarters where they hear screams coming from within. They find Worf is being beaten by Jordy, Tasha, and Data. <laughs> There's more. Petru moves in to help, but Wesley stops him. He explains that this moment of humiliation is one celebrated by Klingons. <laughs> okay. So, and, and the script goes on to explain that Worf tearfully thanks Jordy, Tasha, and Data because being humiliated by friends makes it, quote, the finest humiliation he'd ever experienced. <laughs> okay, I almost believe that, except the part that says Worf in tears. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest ep- latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, please leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to hear what you think. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of the Trek FM shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. And if you'd like to help us keep all the shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. You know, I, that should be a cheer. I'm going to make a cheer for that <laughs> at some point. But the perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, patron zone and it requires a great amount now it just creates a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month and so we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team so again you'll find all the details at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek fm well we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show whether that's in written format or in the form of a cheer and there are many ways for you to do that The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel. And I'm not going to do a cheer for this. I'm just going to say B-A-B-E-L into the search B-A-B-E-L. Bruce has got the cheers covered. We're good there. So just type that into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And word of warning, anything you say can and will be repeated on the show. So you have been warned. Ooh, I love the warning there. Hey, and we'd like to give a big cheer to Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shane Matala, Justin Ozier, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. So Dan, D-A-N, what, where can people find you when you're not being a puddle of goo with a key? Well, 
that's putting a severe crimp in my ability to cheer for sure. But uh, luckily I can still form a hand and tweet. So you can find me on Twitter at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. My YouTube channel is youtube.com slash Kertrats Productions. You can find me on facebook.com slash Kertrats Productions. And of course, in the Babel Conference, usually lurking, but sometimes talking about Star Trek as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not inspecting alien devices and accidentally setting off catastrophes, where can we find you? Kaboom! Show's over. I've been playing with devices too much. Boom. <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the little underline and then Rex. And you can also find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about, of course, Star Wars and especially recently Solo, A Star Wars Story. And of course, you can always find me in the B-A-B-E-L conference. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.